Well, greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line. It's, uh, I think it's Tuesday. I, I, last time I checked, uh, when Rich forces me to do extra programs, I lose track of what day of the week it is and stuff like that. But, you know, he just said we had to do it. So, you know, he's, he, we, he cracks the whip. It's just, it's, it's pretty ugly. But anyways, welcome to the program. Uh, you'll notice I've got a uh, nice little Alpha Maker shirt on here. See that? Theology does matter. And uh, Al Mohler keeps trying to steal that from me. Um, I can pretty much document we've been doing that on here before he started doing that on the briefings. So uh, we're going to have to have a little discussion about that. But uh, uh, actually, if you keep a, uh, an eye on aomin.org, we will uh, pretty soon, right? Fairly soon? Rich is looking at me like, I don't know. I don't know. I've got the guys that are doing it right here with me, but I don't know because I'm the world's worst marketer, so I don't know. We're supposed to have something up eventually. Uh, you know, I was just like... Wow. You know, opportunity, you know, we've got got product here and it's like, well, I don't know, maybe eventually, someday, possibly we might have something up. I don't know. Maybe by so, twenty. So that's like that's like test product you're wearing right there. Yeah, that's okay. that's uh, you know, that's the demo stuff. So but we were just talking. I don't wanna say anything official yet. Right. But the 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 thought at the moment is that we roll out Black Friday. We ro- roll out what? <laughs> what what was that? We roll out Black Friday. Oh, Black Friday. Oh, so because that's just you know those are just the samples. We don't actually have inventory yet. Well, isn't Black Friday after the election? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. I I don't expect there to be a Black Friday. <laughs> I, I I expect there to be uh, freedom forces versus socialist forces um, you guys, uh, you're gonna battles. Totally redo, you're gonna have to totally redo the line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. But you know that that may be when when uh, uh, Utah is invaded by Colorado or something. Yes. I don't I don't know. But yeah. You all think I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, no, this is a nervous laugh back here. This is nervous laugh. <laughs> yeah, it's nervous laughter. Yeah, it is. It, it, it is nervous laughter. Yeah. Anyway, back to the program. Back to the program. Yes, uh, there you go. It does really show up there, doesn't it? Yeah. And there's a nice Cairo in the background. So um, there you go. Um, for, those, <laughs> for those who are part of that sad little group that you see any Christian symbol at all, and you've read way too many Jack Chick uh, uh, cartoons, and automatically think that every Christian symbol is a pagan symbol, well, <clears throat> there you go. Um, you know, a circle's pagan, and a square's pagan. Well, pagans have used everything, folks. Uh, you know, y- you might want to get over that that particular little problem you've got there. Anyhow, we have a lot to get to today uh, because I was sent a, a clip. Y- you know, if someone wanted to sit around and watch every episode of Catholic Answers Live and send me time-indexed links, we'd probably do this more often. I don't have time to do that, but someone did. And I looked at it, and I'm like, yeah, okay, that's something definitely worthwhile uh, taking a look at. The reality is we'd probably get four or five of those per week. And so it'd be really hard to, to keep up with stuff like that. But 
there's actually a whole bunch of sources we could we could go for Mormonism and oh I saw someone sent me I think Jeff Downs sent me yeah Jeff Downs sent me a link to a new Greg Stafford video you know he's still out there doing his thing and he did not look good I'm sorry he he that was that was a little little frightening it was a little scary um, but he's still got his little group out there, and, and so we wouldn't call that Jehovah's Witnesses, because Jehovah's Witnesses wouldn't call that Jehovah's Witnesses. But they're doing their thing, and, and my goodness, uh, social media would, would provide you with so much heresy every day. You could never get to it, because it takes time to edit and put it together and get your time indexes and transfer files. And, blah, 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 blah. and it's gotten a lot easier. Man, I'm going to tell you, I, I can think back to, you know, when we first started doing webcasting and and what we can do now and the speed with which we can do it and you know Dropbox and stuff like that uh, the cloud and all, all that kind of stuff it has gotten a whole lot easier and it looks a lot better looks a lot better I, I a while a while ago I ran into um, my first digital uh, camera uh, in a box somewhere because uh, you know I'm Scottish you might need it someday. <laughs> <laughs> Not only was it was it humongous, um, but I do remember it had a whopping 640 by 480 resolution. 640 by 480. Remember that? I remember having more than one computer monitor that was 640 by 480, and you're sitting there going, "What is what is that?" You you're you're so used to megapixels pixels on your screens that you don't even have any idea what that looked like, but. Anyway, uh, well, I just I just linked today to a really cool uh, commercial that someone I found this morning, someone sent to me, of uh, Bruce Willis uh, doing a commercial for diehard batteries, and um, they they brought back all the old, I guess all the all the guys that he fought uh, in various of the diehard movies. Uh, including the guy who drove that limo in the first Die Hard movie. Um, and uh, they, they put it all in a two-minute Die Hard commercial. It was great. It was wonderful. But as I was watching it, I realized, A, there are a bunch of people who will be voting in the next election, have no idea what any of that means, because they've never seen any of that stuff. They don't, they don't get... Bruce who? They, they don't get the limo. They don't get none of that stuff. And um, secondly, they're probably all wearing Depends. That's, that's the really sad, sad thing, is, is uh, all of the super action heroes uh, that they made all those great movies way back when. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why they didn't show Bruce climbing up into that uh, air shaft that he had to get out of that place, because there ain't no way... <laughs> <laughs> no, they'd have to get a body double and and the whole nine yards. That'd be that's, it's not going to happen. <laughs> yep, yep. So anyway, uh, yeah, we've been doing this for a while, and uh, it just reminded me, you know, that there's a lot of old folks stuff that I got to be careful not to try to use them as illustrations. <laughs> don't want to miss, don't want to lose half the audience, and then the other half is. Uh, probably going to be asleep after 15 minutes anyways. So um, anyhow, uh, some of you, I certainly do get this. Some of you are not aware of the fact that for many years before there was um, 
a video dividing line. Uh, we did radio. Well, we did audio. We did just plain webcasting from, wow, uh, right at the turn of the century. <laughs> nah, well, when did we leave KPXQ? Is that 01? But we had started doing real audio before that. Yeah, because they were doing it. Yeah. Um, so, and then when did we when did we finally with the with the ceiling, ceiling tiles on the walls and the the, the bookcase that over there that was leaning? You think I was twelve or thirteen? Think we only done this eight or seven or eight years? Interesting. Okay. All right. So for a decade. Yeah, so for over a decade, when we were in here, we still were just, I could wear whatever I wanted, you know, pick my nose whenever I wanted to, it just didn't matter. And then these things showed up, um, and everything changed. Uh, so, you know, way way back when, in the olden days, uh, we need to get little lights that have little arrows, meaning I'm going over here now. Uh uh, maybe we'll get that in the new studio, but um, uh, no, not <laughs> that. That just got shot down. Okay, fine. Anyway, uh, back in the 1990s and early into the early 2000s, uh, one of the major things we were involved with was dealing with uh, Roman Catholicism, uh, debating Catholic Answers. Um, Catholic Answers was doing lots of debating back in the 1980s, 1990s, and um, they don't do nearly as much debating as they used to do. Um, and uh, we're one of the reasons for that, I think, to be perfectly honest with you, because I think initially uh, people like Scott Hahn and Jerry Matitix, um were just wiping the floor with everybody that they, that they debated. And finally, the other side showed up, and um, and things changed, and you can still go back and man, I wish I had the videos from uh, the the initial Paco debates and uh, those those initial debates. But we've we've still got not overly high quality audio of some of the earliest ones, and then the video starts showing up eventually um, of of the debates and the, that first debate on Long Island with Jerry Matitix that Chris Arnzen put together, and you know a single camera. Uh, recording off audience sound, uh, off room sound. So, in other words, there wasn't any feed going into the camera from our microphones. And so, you know, the audio qualities compared to what we do today really stinks. Uh, but you can still make it out. And they were fascinating debates, and people weren't doing anything like that. So, I mean, people flocked. We, we filled that place up over and over and over again. Uh, starting in Baldwin, and then we went out to uh, uh, start with Hunt or something, um, Huntington Townhouse, yeah. And uh, I don't think even that exists anymore. I don't think either one of them. Yeah, yeah. I think the one's been torn down. Anyway, and so we would we did for for ten years. We did a the Great Debate series on Long Island and uh, debated many topics on the subject of Roman Catholicism. I've debated. Uh, many of the leading Roman Catholic apologists who are now aging. I mean, this was, uh, you know, over 20 years ago. Uh, and so 
But we, the reality is the topics that we covered really haven't changed. Now, Rome has changed. Um, back then you had, like I mentioned in the last program, you had uh, the consistency of the pontificate of John Paul II. Um, that has changed with his death, and then Cardinal Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, Benedict um, a, a huge theologian, and, um, but as a German theologian, deeply influenced by a lot of postmodern thought and, and things similar to that. And now Francis, um, the whole the whole scene has shifted uh, in it, and and I I don't even know how you do debates right now on that particular subject because you can just always go I'm not sure that's what Francis believes you know and and that changes everything, but anyway um, they are still doing Catholic apologetics. It is much more challenging today, and the interesting thing is there does seem to be this chasm that exists between old-style Roman Catholic apologetics, and I say old-style in the sense of Tim Staples. Tim Staples came along. uh, We debated him. uh, That was the first one in... uh, Okay, so we we debated him twice, 97 and 2000. That's not including the Bible Answer Man uh, programs, but formally on Sola Scriptura and Papal Infallibility, and those were in Southern California. And then, like I said, we did um, we did the Bible Answer Man broadcast, I think twice, if I recall correctly. And then the last thing uh, Tim and I did, I was we were supposed to debate in Australia last year. He was there at the exact same. He was in Sydney at the exact same time I was, but they wouldn't debate. Uh, the we had, we had set up. We had people that wanted to set it up, and there had been an agreement at first, and then it's like, uh, no, we're not going to do it. So we were both there, could have done it, had willing people on both sides, and they said no. Uh, So the last time that we did a formal debate was here on the dividing line uh, on the subject of purgatory. Uh, And that was a good debate. And um, uh, the weird thing is... uh, most of the debates we've had on purgatory have been really good, and of course the, the Stravinskis debate—that's a—that's a—that's a top five, uh, whichever direction you go, because it was so clear. It, what was fascinating was the debate on purgatory was clearer on the difference between the two sides on justification than the debate on justification was. Uh, part of that was because Robertson Genis can muddle lots of things, but um, but because purgatory was sort of like, well, let's apply this, let's see how this works, and that's that that was that was a fascinating fascinating debate. So, anyways, with all of that said, uh, I have a, a call here from Catholic Answers. It was sent to me, uh, not by Catholic Answers, but uh, by someone else on Twitter, and. I want us to, to listen to it, and then we'll go back through it. Um, and as always, my, my hope is that as you're listening to it, uh, don't just sit there going, oh, I'm looking forward to what James is going to say in response to what he says. Because I've been hearing Tim Staples and Jerry Meditix and Patrick Madrid and Carl Keating and Mark Brumley um, and, and, and all that 
Sorry, guys, but old group. Because <laughs> that's the reality. We are, we are the senior statesmen. Uh, they are the senior statesmen of the Catholic apologists these days. What? Uh, we're the boomers, the boomer generation. Oh, okay. All right. So the boomer generation of uh, Catholic apologists and, and the few of us on the other side that responded uh, to what they had to say. Um, and uh, so uh, this is Tim Staples on the air uh, taking these calls. And as always, like I was saying, uh, instead of just going, oh, I wonder how he's going to respond to that, um, how would you respond? That's the, the key is when you hear this, what you want to be doing is going, how would I respond? Are you, are you listening presuppositionally? And presuppositionally doesn't just mean applying some type of transcendental argument. Uh, thinking presuppositionally means that when you're listening to an argument, you are immediately identifying the most often unexpressed assumptions that are lying behind the questions, statements, uh, the form of the question, how it is uh, being phrased. The problem is, if you learn to do this, listening to almost any cultural conversation today will give you heartburn uh, because it becomes so transparently obvious that the cultural conversation that we're having is on a second-grade level at its highest. At the highest levels of government, it's on a second-grade level. Once you start recognizing just how vacuous most, um, most folks' arguments are. But we especially have to listen to this very, very carefully uh, in this context because this is the foundational issue. I'm not saying it's the issue that provides the primary theological division. The primary theological division in regards to Roman Catholicism is the gospel itself, the nature of the God. How do you have peace with God? Uh, it was with Tim Staples in studio. I remember. I can, I can see where Hank Canegraaff was sitting and obviously not listening carefully enough, um, given where he's gone since then. Uh, <clears throat> but I can see where Hank was sitting and where Tim was sitting and where my guys were and their guys were. And we're sort of facing each other, and we're going at it. And it was at that time that I forced the issue and said, Tim, I want to make sure people understand. If someone walked up to you and I, uh, let's say outside an abortion clinic, and asked us, what must I do to be saved? Is it not true? that the answers that you and I would give would be fundamentally different and contradictory. And he said, yes, that's the issue. That's the issue. Now, there are all sorts of foundational things you have to get to, because remember, in the Reformation, in the Reformation, you had the formal principle and the material principle. I think every, I think every non-Roman Catholic and non-Eastern Orthodox, anyone who claims to be Reformed, should be able to sing A Mighty Fortress without using the hymnal. That's the first thing. If, if you can't, if you can't, you guys, can you sing A Mighty Fortress? 
shall we shall we test it? Shall we have Mike turn, uh, Rich turn the mic microphone on and and have have a duet uh, back? Not going to do that. We have a studio audience today, um, and so uh, they look a little cagey, a little. I don't know. Just I'm, Rich has his back to him, but I'm keeping an eye on for Rich because you, you never know. Um, looking a little. I'm, you know, I could hear an Allahu Akbar coming out, something like. Who knows? It, it, it could get a little, little strange out there. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that does remind me. That was the other thing I was going to talk about in the program today. Help, help me to remind. It. I want to talk about if, if I when I get to the end of this, I want to talk about what's going on in France right now with uh, with Macron and and the suppression of religious liberty for the sake of secularism in France. I want to talk about that too. But I, I, I didn't put it in, in Evernote. And if I don't put it in Evernote, it's like it, it leaks out of my brain. Anyways, what were we talking about here? Um, yes, Tim Staples. Uh, the, you need to know, if you're going to be reformed, you need to be able to sing A Mighty Fortress is Our God by memory. Okay, If you want to be obnoxiously reformed, then learn it in German. Which I have done as well. I don't know. I can sing all the verses, but I've certainly sung it in German. And when you and hey, look, I've preached from Luther's pulpit. I had to. I mean, what what do you expect me to do? Okay, I quoted Luther in German when I preached from his pulpit. All right, and if you've been there, then you know that at the top of the church, around the belfry type thing uh, up there, is Ein Festerberg ist. ist Unsere Gott, and uh, so you, you're looking up at it going, what is that? And you, you, you need to know him. So anyway, that's not overly serious, but I, I would suggest that you know, the, know that particularly him. But the other thing you need to know are the principles of the Reformation. The material and formal principles of the Reformation. Now, how can you remember which one's which? Simple. The material principle made up the material of the preaching. What was, the, what was the substance of the preaching that changed people's minds, that, that moved people's hearts, that, that brought this about? That was sola fide. Justification by faith alone. Grace alone through faith alone. So the material principle... What was being preached was justification by faith alone, which, of course, Rome denies. The formal principle, which gave form to the Reformation, so it was not the substance of the preaching, but the underlying uh, presuppositional assumptions, sola scriptura. And so, historically... Luther came to the material principle and then was forced to recognize the formal principle, primarily when he uh, engaged in debate on the subject and was challenged by his lifelong enemy, um, a brilliant man. And if you want to hear some more discussion about this, but you can, I'm not going to get into it right now because that would take us way far away from where we need to be. But, uh, I did a presentation at the uh, uh, Sovereign Conference in Washington, D.C. in November of 2017 on the two different Luthers. And I uh, specifically talked about this particular subject and went into all the details. So look that up if you want to 
Follow this on, find out how Luther was pushed into recognizing Sola Scriptura and why he and his lifelong enemies could both be anti-Jewish at the end of their lives and yet have different principles. So I went into all that kind of stuff and, and dealt with it at that time. Anyway, so uh, you need to know those principles. And so what we're talking about today in this clip will be the formal principle, and that is the issue of Sola Scriptura. And I have corrected Tim Staples on every text he's going to cite for over 20 years, and he's still citing them. And I'm going to continue to correct him, and I'm going to continue to point out that he really does not have a meaningful response. He gets away with murder. Um, He wouldn't get away with this because I can say, hey, dude, I pointed this out to you two decades ago. And you still don't have an answer. But it's Catholic Answers Live. I'm not on the air. And he's probably not assuming that I'm going to be uh, on the air uh, at any time soon with him. So there you go. Okay. Uh, so here is the phone call. Now, I'll admit the caller is a little perky. I'm not sure if that communicates. He's, he's a little cheeky. Um, so... I, and and I know Tim Staples. He got the answer. The guy got the answers that he got. And you can see Tim get revved up. Because he was a little on the cheeky side. Okay? Um, but that's good because that, that gives us more to respond to. So, all right, here we go. Here's, uh, here's, here's, here's the call. 831 Truth. Jeff listening in. Southern New Jersey are watching on YouTube Live. Welcome to Catholic Answers Live. Jeff, are you, are you as far south as Cape May? Uh, no, not that far south. All right. What's your question? Uh, yeah, uh, thanks for taking my call. I should preface that. Um, I, uh, I've been following Catholic apologetics for a while. Good. Good. And I've uh, generally found their arguments against Sola Scriptura to be uh, very bad. Okay. And I know, I know that's a a wide-ranging topic that can cover a multiple multiplicity of arguments. Uh, and I kind of, in two callers ago, I kind of heard some points I, I would classify as arguments that aren't very good. Okay. And uh, just, I, I mean, you may want me to narrow this down because it's a broad topic, but I thought I would uh, call in and try to... Sure, um, sure, Jeff. Well, uh, tell, tell, me, tell me why my argument was bad. Uh, well, first of all, uh, uh, Mark chapter 7 with the parallel account and Matthew 13 implicitly uh, teaches uh, Sola Scriptura. When, uh, um, okay, how is uh, that? When, oh, how is that? Well, the tradition of the elders, which uh, we can see from the Talmud, is uh, basically uh, what Orthodox Jews today would call uh, the Oral Torah which is a uh, allegedly divine oral tradition that uh, comes from, uh, which came from Moses, allegedly, uh, through the prophets to the elders. That's why it's Okay, well, Jeff, let me, let me jump in and, and tweak you just a little bit there. Okay, it is true, Mark chapter 7, and by the way, the parallel is in Matthew chapter 15, where Jesus hammers the the traditions of men, that is not in any way Jesus condemning tradition in general. 
In fact, as you must know, brother, or correct me if I'm wrong here, in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, for example, Jesus refers to a tradition of the authority of the high priest that goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 28, and as it continued down through the centuries in the church, the tradition of the Jews was you had what was called the chair of Moses. And by the way, even Protestant scholars acknowledge this, many Protestant scholars acknowledge that Jesus is acknowledging this tradition as divine, not only does he acknowledge it, but he then tells the apostles to obey it. You listen to those who are on the chair of Moses, do according to what they say, but not according to what they do, for they say, but they do not. But he acknowledges the authority and uh, uh, the tradition. He acknowledges the tradition of Abraham's bosom in Luke chapter 16. This is a Jewish tradition that you'll find in even some of the intertestamental apocryphal Old Testament books. It was already popularly taught, and it's in some of the, the books that we call the inspired Word of God as well. Uh, that unfortunately Protestants have rejected. We have the, I mentioned earlier in, in Matthew 2.23, and there are many more we could look at, the oral prophecy that the uh, St. Matthew acknowledged was divine. So to say because Jesus condemns the Corban rule, which was a tradition of men that contradicted the word of God, means all tradition is, is condemned is simply not true. In fact, we can say similarly in the New Testament that St. Paul clearly upholds traditions that are of God and that bind all believers, as I mentioned earlier in the show, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, stand fast in the traditions you've been taught, either by word or written level, letter. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, he says, mark those who walk contrary to the tradition. I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, have nothing to do with them. Right? That's pretty authoritative, saying if you don't walk in accordance with the tradition, you are marked and we will have nothing to do with you. How do these examples sound to you, Jeff, of half a dozen or so uh, examples where, where, our, where uh, our, our Lord defends tradition? Yeah, I'm familiar with a lot of those examples. Uh, there was a lot of errors in his uh, argument that it would keep said a lot in a short amount of time. Okay. Uh, like the the seat of Moses uh, passage, kind not of as the U.S. Catholic Bishop's Bible says in this footnote, is that they're not sure what the seat of Moses is. But if you were taking that passage the way you want to take it, it wouldn't harmonize with Mark 7, because Mark 7, he's condemning something they're actually being taught by the Pharisees. And that... So you're, uh, you're no, no, no. What you have to do, brother, if, with all due respect, Jeff, what we have to do is take the words, the Word of God, and believe all of it. This is, I'm going to tell you, Jeff, this is one of the reasons why, and you may know, I'm a former Assembly of God youth pastor. I was raised Southern Baptist. One of the reasons why I'm a Catholic is because of this. The Catholic Church takes all of sacred scripture. And so when you see one text, I'll, I'll drop one I know you and I agree on. Okay, he he's going to go from there and <clears throat> sort of 
take it away from there. But um, there you have a, a, a classic, standard uh, presentation of the idea of accepting the concept of oral tradition. Because remember, in Roman... in in conservative Roman Catholic apologetics, you have the idea that Scripture is a subcategory of capital S, capital T, sacred tradition. And sacred tradition is made up of the written tradition, Scripture, and the oral tradition, which is delivered by Jesus to the apostles and passed down orally in the church. Okay? So, there is a classic... Just throw out Second Thessalonians 2.15 and 3.6 and, and, and rat-a-tat-tat-tat-tat. I've told the story, I'll, I'll tell it very briefly again, about when I first listened to Jerry Mattatix make a presentation on the biblical evidence for the exaltation of Mary in Scripture, especially in Old Testament types. This was back in the day when um, I would listen on headphones, while I still was right, we did we had invented bikes at that point in time, um, and I would go on my bike rides back in the '90s, and I had something called a Walkman in my back pocket. Uh, that's why I could go so fast now, is that we don't have all that extra weight that we had back then uh, to have to have that thing in the back pocket. Uh, yeah, not not the ghetto blaster. No, um, uh, this was uh, this was this this was small small enough to fit in a pocket, but it's something called a cassette tape, and so you had to keep it clean, or it would eat the cassette tape in the middle of your ride, which really was a, a bummer, and um, and stuff like that. So anyway, I had listened to Jerry Mattatix make this presentation. I was blown away. It was so fast-paced and so many references and it sounded incredible and baptist boy me had never heard anything like this i mean i had started studying roman catholicism but i had never heard any kind of argumentation like this before i was blown away so i got back from that ride i got cleaned up i took that cassette tape and i put it into a different cassette tape player one i could stop and start easily and I uh, had a computer by that point in time uh, that had a slow Bible program, but it still had a Bible program, uh, one of the first ones. I think it was called PC Study Bible back then. And uh, this was before Logos and Accordance and all that kind of stuff. This was on a probably an 8088, uh, for those of you who remember. Uh, a 386, maybe, something like that. Um, yeah, but again, the younger people are going, what? Never mind. Um and I started back at the beginning. And once I got the first reference, pause. You could pause it. Uh, it, could, it could mess the tape up if you paused it for too long, but you could pause it. Uh, and uh, I looked it up. And then the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And with every single reference, he was not being honest. The context did not substantiate the arguments he was doing. That was one of the most useful evenings I ever spent because I had been so impressed with the argumentation because it sounded so good. There was so much confidence. And then to come to discover that was a complete misrepresentation of what each one of those texts was saying. 
But they get away with it because most people don't check them out, especially most Roman Catholics. Let's just be honest. Most Roman Catholics are not grabbing a Bible program and checking that stuff out. There are a few, but the vast majority, ah, hey, he said it. That sounds good. That's just how it works. So uh, the rat-a-tat-tat stuff can work on both sides. But if you want to see, for example, you know, I was just mentioning the Maddox thing. Go watch the debates that I had with Jerry on the subject of Mary, like the first one we had on Long Island, and see what happens when someone who has the time to look up the references can then cross-examine you. And the wheels fell off. Uh, the, the, one of the last debates we did up in Utah with Jerry Matitix at the University of Utah uh, on Immaculate Conception. I can just honestly say I won those debates because the facts are on my side. And if you've got two equal debaters and the facts are on one side, not the other, th- that it should be fairly straightforward what ends up happening as a result. So check those out. So here, here you've got the same type of situation. Uh, you, you've, got, you've got the presentations. You've got the, uh, you've got the argumentation coming forward. Now let's stop and start. And I invite you to get your Bible program, your Bible, whatever it is, and let's examine what Tim Staples is saying. And here's the other thing. There's some background information that needs to be presented as well. Sometimes you got to do some digging. I was going to grab this. I forgot. I apologize. Um, but in the other room, I have the Mishnah. I should have still grabbed it while that was playing because I've heard this before. Um, but I'll give you some of the background information that will help you to see through some of the argumentation that's being, that's being given. So let's, I'm not going to start right from the start, but uh, from as we get into it here. Topic that can cover a multiple, multiplicity of arguments. Uh, and I kind of, in two callers ago, I kind of heard some points I, I would classify as arguments that aren't very good. Okay. And, uh, just, I, I mean, you may want me to narrow this down because it's a broad topic, but I thought I would, uh, call in and try to... Sure, um, sure, Jeff. Well, uh, tell, tell me, tell me why my argument was bad. Uh, well, first of all, uh... <clears throat> Uh, Mark chapter 7 with the parallel account and Matthew 13 implicitly uh, teaches uh, soul scriptura. When, uh, um, okay, how is uh, that? When, oh, how is that? Well, the tradition of the elders, which uh, we can see from the Talmud, is uh, basically uh, what Orthodox Jews today would call uh, the oral Torah, which is a uh, allegedly divine oral tradition that... Now, let's stop right there and let, let's get some background, Okay. Uh, Matthew chapter 15, uh, I like this one, it's a little bit longer than, than, than uh, Mark's version. Then some uh, Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? And so there you have the, the standard terminology, uh, uh, paradisus, uh, tradition, that which is handed down. So you have the tradition of the presbyteron, the elders. So this is, this is clearly... Uh, what is considered to be part of that, as he described it, oral Torah, the oral body of revelation that at the time of Jesus, the Jews claimed had been passed down orally from Moses through the great rabbis. All right, that was, that was what they were claiming. Now, he mentioned the Talmud. I would be more precise on that. Specifically, it's tractate a both of the Mishnah. Now, background information as well. 
the Mishnah is the codification of uh, Jewish beliefs, traditions, practices that's put together between 200 and 250 years after the time of Christ. So, since there is some time that has passed, you have to be careful. You can't just automatically assume that everything that was in the Mishnah was current in the days of Jesus. But most of it was. Um, there might be you know, a few, few places where there was development, but most of it was. Now, the Korban rule is right there in Tractate of Both, in the Mishnah, and the claim specifically about the Korban rule, which is what Matthew 15 and Mark 7 is about, is said to be a part of this oral Torah, this oral revelation that has come down from Moses through the rabbis. That is the specific claim. So, what is the principle? Well, uh, I'm, I'm getting ahead here. So, there is, there is what is being discussed here. And so, Jesus being challenged, why do disciples break the tradition of others? They do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father and mother, Whatever I have that would have helped you has been given to God. In, Matthew, in uh, Mark 7, the Korban term itself is used. Uh, but it's the same, it's a parallel account. Same, same thing. He is not to honor his father or his mother, and by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So, Jesus' counterexample is specifically the Korban rule, which is a part of the Oral Torah, which is a part of the oral tradition, the tradition of the elders, that is considered to be binding upon the people by the scribes and Pharisees. All right? So, we've established that this is a claim, the Jews made the claim in the Mishnah that the Korban rule is divine, it comes from a reliable source, Moses, it has been orally passed down by the great rabbis. So, huh, here is a real clear parallel to exactly what Rome claims and what Tim Staples is going to claim when he quotes 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Because when he uses 2 Thessalonians 2.15, or when Jerry Maddox used it in our debate in Sola Scriptura in 1998-ish, somewhere around there, um, when it's been used by every Roman Catholic apologist uh, uh, over the past number of decades, what they claim is that there are traditions that were taught by Jesus to the disciples, and the disciples then delivered those to the bishops. So the difference is bishops versus rabbis. But they are the authoritative um, individuals chosen by God to carry this, uh, this, this tradition and to teach to others. That this is passed down orally then through the bishops, in the church, just as the Korban rule was passed down, divine origin, divinely passed down orally outside of Scripture, and is binding. They're direct parallels. They are direct parallels. Okay? So, the caller's argument is, Jesus said, even if you claim that it's not a human tradition, it is a divine tradition, If you follow Jesus, 
you test even that which is called a divine tradition by the higher authority of the written word of God. So, by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. How are they to know that? By reference to the written word of God, not an oral word of God. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, etc., etc. So he condemns them, but the point is, how do you know what is human tradition or divine tradition? The Jews believe the Korban rule was divine tradition. That's what the traditions of the fathers are all about. That's what that, that's 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 the whole essence of it, is that this is a living, vital connection to Moses, who spoke with God. And what Rome says is, we have this body of tradition, oral tradition, which was delivered to the apostles. The apostles then delivered it to the bishops. And we have access to this. Now, for decades, we've all, everyone like myself says, show us this tradition. And they can't, and they won't. Because the only way to do that is to look at the things that Rome has defined based upon tradition, but she could define something else tomorrow allegedly based upon tradition, and we'd have no way of knowing it. So, the living tradition of the church becomes a second source of revelation. It really does. They deny that, but that's the reality. And when you look at what Rome has defined over the past two centuries, and what has Rome defined over the past two centuries? I think if you're going to be talking with your Roman Catholic friends, you probably should know. I mean, I mean this is sort of important stuff. Um, but you, you have two key Marian dogmas, and you have one key papal dogma. So you, you have uh, the whole concept of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, which was taught against, I did a whole program on this, but taught against by, by popes, uh, et cetera, et cetera, down through the centuries. But it develops out of tradition, and becomes a dogma in the middle of the 19th century. A dogma with the anathema. If you dare to even question it in your heart, you are separated from the church. We're not talking about, you know, we sort of think this is a nice insight. You can believe it or not believe it. No. That's not what a dogma is. A dogma is de fide, by faith. It's, it's definitional to faith. You cannot question the Immaculate Conception and be a faith Roman Catholic. I would say 75% of European and North American Roman Catholicism does that. Does that. Especially in the leadership of the church, in the seminaries, they don't really believe in the Immaculate Conception. That's, that's, that's magical hoo-ha. And, it, and in fact, the Immaculate Conception is a horrific doctrine um, because it fundamentally denies the Incarnation. If uh, perpetual virginity and immaculate conception together, the the sexual aspects of Mary's uh, dogmas, when you put them together, it's a fundamental denial of the of the incarnation and an attempt to parallel Mary with Jesus. Wrote a book on the subject. Uh, it's actually on Amazon, right? In um, Amazon Kindle, uh, Mary and other Redeemer question mark. So check that out. But the point is, middle of nineteenth century, you have that defined uh, a little. 20 years, uh, odd, odd years later, you have papal infallibility, 
defined at the First Vatican Council. And then, in the middle of the 20th century, you have the bodily assumption of Mary defined, which does not tell you whether Mary died or not. You're allowed to believe either way. But Mary was bodily assumed into heaven. Her body did not experience corruption. Uh, was defined at de fide. Interestingly enough, without quite the same level of teeth uh, in the anathema provided, uh, the condemnation if you were to reject this, but still, it's de fide. You have to believe that. And again, I don't think a large portion of the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church actually does believe that in the way that it was defined, the way it was meant. They always find a way to spiritualize it and come up with, you know, it's sort of like how many Southern Baptist uh, professors sign the statement on inerrancy and then come up with a very spiritualized way of getting rid of inerrancy. It, it happens. And same thing in, in Roman Catholicism. Um, so this is the whole idea that they have uh, regarding oral tradition. It's a direct parallel. And the historical reality from Matthew 15 and Mark 7 is that Jesus says there's a way to not fall into this trap of believing something that people claim came from God. The Jews, the Jews didn't say this is just a human tradition one way or the other. No, this is, this is the oral Torah. This comes from God. But you'll notice Tim doesn't actually deal with that. He calls it a human tradition. But that's not what the Jews believed. That's not what the Jews believed. But he dismisses that so that he can create a division between merely human tradition and divine tradition. So you're trying to find a way to continue believing that there is such a thing as an oral tradition that's been delivered by Jesus to the apostles, to the bishops, and get around the fact that Jesus said, you test these things by Scripture. Okay? So that's what's going on here. Uh, that background gives you some of that information. It uh, comes from... Uh which came from Moses, allegedly, uh, through the prophets to the elders. That's why it's called Okay, well, Jeff, let me, let me jump in and, and tweak you just a little bit there. Okay, it is true, Mark chapter 7, and by the way, the parallel is in Matthew chapter 15, where Jesus hammers the, the traditions of men, which were believed to be divine traditions handed down from Moses, externally, through an authoritative body of God-ordained individuals. Keep that in mind. That is not, in any way, Jesus condemning tradition in general. Now, catch that. See what you... See, analyze the argumentation. That's not condemning tradition in general. That's true, but it doesn't take away the reality that there is a mechanism for the identification of what is true and false tradition, and it's the supremacy of the written word of Scripture, which Rome denies, functionally denies, has to deny, because she has promulgated as dogma so many things based upon that tradition, which she cannot base in Scripture. So catch, see, what, see what's going on here? This is, this is a methodology that Look, I, I first recognized this in Carl Keating, uh, Catholicism and Fundamentalism, This Rock magazine, back in the 1980s, when they first started doing this stuff. And because there had been, especially for conservative fundamentalists, 
uh, had developed this allergic reaction to being even around in the same room with the Roman Catholic, the, the fundamentalists back in the 20s had known these arguments and were good at responding to them. Now, nobody even heard these arguments anymore. And so these Roman Catholics come along and start using this type of stuff. Just listen to the debate that Carl Keating and Patrick Madrid had with two fundamentalists in Denver while I was debating Jerry Maddox on the papacy. They, they destroyed them because fundamentalism doesn't engage uh, Roman Catholicism in a meaningful fashion and does not think presuppositionally, does not argue presuppositionally uh, in a meaningful fashion. They, they do, actually, in one sense, but it's because it's... That's a long story. I'll go, won't go into it right now. In fact, as you must know, brother, or correct me if I'm wrong here, in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, for example, Jesus refers to a tradition of the authority of the high priest that goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 28, and as it continued down through the centuries in the church, the tradition of the Jews was you had what was called the chair of Moses. And okay, now let's talk about the chair of Moses for a second. All right, let's uh, again. This is not something that uh, it's going to be covered very often in Bible study classes and things like that. But it needs to be, it should be. Um, Matthew chapter twenty-three, verse one. Now remember, what's Matthew chapter twenty-three? Matthew chapter twenty-three is a incredible um, section of judgment upon the Jewish leaders. I mean, this is, Matthew 23 is the essence of Jesus' condemnation of the hypocrisy of the Jewish leadership in his day. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Now notice, uh, saying, upon the cathedras of Moses, the, that's where cathedral comes from, by the way. Uh, the, the cathedral is where the bishop was who sat in the chair. And that's where cathedras comes from, that's where cathedral comes from. Upon the seat of Moses, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves upon that. Now, there, there are some who would say they have done so inappropriately. Um, others would say... That's not necessarily there. But, therefore, all they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But by but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor, and it goes on and on and on. A, a scathing denunciation of these individuals, but what's being said here is, oh, but, 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 you have the seat of Moses, and Jesus says it's an authoritative teaching office that's not found in Scripture, and therefore you have oral tradition. That's the argument that's being made here. So it's in the middle of a judgment passage, and the most you can say is they have seated themselves in this situation, and immediately Jesus says they're hypocrites. Now, what was the seat of Moses? Well, Sorry, I was gonna, I was gonna go back into my uh, pictures and make sure I, I could show you a few pictures of the seat of Moses. Uh, every synagogue had them. Uh, that I well, th- okay, there were some synagogues that I saw when I visited Israel in um, in uh, 2018 um, that uh, were destroyed enough that you couldn't necessarily tell where it was. But a number of them, I, I got some really good pictures of the seat of Moses. 
And this was the place that would be close to the storage of the scrolls. And so this is where uh, the person would sit who would read the scriptures, who would read from the scriptures. Uh, Hence, it's the seat of Moses, because Moses gives us the origin and first elements of the scriptures. Um, They obviously didn't believe that all scriptures came from Moses, of course. But the, the point is, he's the first one to be used of God to create this body of scrolls that make the hands dirty. They are holy. Uh, They were laid up in the temple because they are holy. They have a special authority. And so to sit in the seat of Moses, the authority comes from what you're reading. And so when it says, therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, Jesus is simply saying, maintain the order of the synagogue. I'm not calling you to be rebels at this point in time, but do not do according to their deeds. Observe, recognize the difference between the written revelation that they read to you and the actions that they actually undertake in and of themselves. So it is a huge leap to take this and go, ah, see, the actual teaching of Jesus is not what you have in Matthew 15 and Mark chapter 7, where he tests supposedly divine revelation by the unchanging standard of Scripture. No, 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 no. The actual teaching of Jesus is that there is a Jewish magisterium, a Jewish magisterial authority represented by the seed of Moses. The interesting thing, a number of interesting things about that is that the Jewish magisterium, for example, had a different canon. Tim's going to make an error here in a little bit. Well, it's not so much an error uh, as it is just biased presentation. He's going to talk about apocryphal books. He's not going to tell you that those same apocryphal books were rejected by the people who sat on the seat of Moses. They never read from those books, but he does. So he doesn't actually accept what he's now saying. Maybe that's why we don't get debates anymore. I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe that has something to do with it. But, so, there's, there's the Matthew 23 section. If you go visit, uh, Lord willing, get a chance to do it again someday. Um, if we go visit uh, Israel, then you will see the seat of Moses. Got some really good pictures uh, of, of that, especially, where were we? Was that Bethsaida? It was like a second or third century uh, one, but it was, the seat of Moses was, was still there. You couldn't identify it in the first century uh, one uh, in uh, Galilee that we visited. It was so exciting because uh, it was clearly, um, it was in Magdala, Migdal. Uh, so that's where Mary Magdalene was from. So there, there's a 99.9% chance that Jesus was in that synagogue, and he taught in all the synagogues. So the, the rocks we were looking at heard Jesus teach. Uh, but you couldn't really identify the seat of Moses in that particular one, but uh, you could in a number of others. By the way, even Protestant scholars acknowledge this. Many Protestant scholars acknowledge that Jesus is acknowledging this tradition as divine. Now, that this tradition as divine, what tradition? 
Let's be specific. Is this a divine revelation that exists outside of Scripture so that Jesus is now contradicting what he said in Matthew 15 and Matthew 7? No, of course not. What, what did he actually say? They have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. So are you saying that the chair of Moses is a divine revelation? If so, why don't you have it anymore? Okay? What, what was this tradition? What, there was a place in the synagogue. Synagogues did not exist in the days of Moses, okay? And synagogues came into existence after the people were driven out of the land. So what is this tradition? Who gave it? And how is it divine in, in origin? This is how the people are worshiping. And when people read the scriptures, as Jesus did in the synagogue in Nazareth, when the scrolls were given to him, that's what he was doing. So what's the authority from? If, if you want consistency, you want tota scriptura, all of scripture, then you can put Mark 7, Matthew 15, and Matthew 23 together. And you're also going to notice in Matthew chapter 23, this is a part of a judgment passage about the hypocrisy of people who will have divine revelation and then, then not live in light of it. That's what's being discussed here. This is to try to turn this into some kind of idea of an extra-biblical tradition that has been passed down from who we don't even know. Where's this from? In, in, where, where do you find any of this? Don't know. But then always be careful, especially with Tim Staples. <laughs> well, actually, there are some others that are much worse. Um, but be very careful when these quote-unquote former Protestants... Uh, start talking about Protestant scholarship. Uh, the number of times I have caught these guys out in misrepresenting Protestant, quote-unquote, Protestant scholarship, or even what they call Protestant scholarship, is legion. Not only does he acknowledge it, but he then tells the apostles to obey it. You listen to those who are on the chair of Moses, do according to what they say, but not according to what they do, for they say, but they do not. But he acknowledges the authority. and uh, uh, the Which came from the reading of the scriptures, which is what the person seated upon the seat of Moses was doing. Tradition. He acknowledges the tradition of Abraham's bosom in Luke chapter 16. This is a Jewish tradition that you'll find in even some of the intertestamental, apocryphal Old Testament books. It was already popularly taught, and it's in some of the, the books that we call the inspired word of God as well. And when did they start calling them the inspired word of God, specifically? April of 1546. April of 1546. A millennium and a half after the birth of Jesus is when you have the dogmatic revelation, huh, revelation, dogmatic definition of the Council of Trent in regards to the canon of Scripture, which includes the canonization of those books. You have entire popes. You have popes. Pope Gregory the Great specifically said the book of Maccabees was not canon Scripture. Uh, who knew that in 1546, right? Uh, anyways. Uh, that, unfortunately, Protestants have rejected. We have... Which popes rejected, and which Jerome rejected, and which uh, long... Which, which Cardinal Cayetan, who interviewed Luther, had just written a commentary on the Bible, and he rejected. Shortly before, they all of a sudden became authoritative in 1546. Ah, we've debated that one a few times. Check out those, uh, those debates uh, as well. I mentioned earlier in, in Matthew 2.23, and there are many more we could look at. The so what he's got here, what he's, what he's trying to say here now is, well, 
maybe there was an oral tradition that refers to the 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 Nazareth, the the Nazareth issue. He'd be born in Nazareth. The the issues regarding Nazareth, what that might mean, and maybe that was an oral tradition, and and so that means it's somehow revealed or uh, this type of thing. They can never be specific, and that helps them because they can never be specific about their oral traditions today either. What might become dogmatic in the next 50 years or something like that. You, you don't know. ...prophecy that the, uh, St. Matthew acknowledged was divine. So to say because Jesus condemns the Corban rule, which was a tradition of men... But which the Jews identified as being originated in Moses and being divine... That contradicted the word of God means all tradition is is condemned is simply not true. Now, did you catch that? So, what we have is we are given a biblical mechanism of being able to test tradition. So, what he wants to change that into is we are saying all tradition is bad. Well, there's obviously human tradition. There are traditions of men that are condemned in Scripture. But there are positive uses of tradition as well. We have to define what those are. They don't want you to define what those are, because they just want you to default into the idea of this nebulous oral tradition that you can never define, that you can never identify, because that's what they're going to use to come up with their unbiblical teachings. This, this is, look, Tim isn't even having to think right now. He's done this so many times over the, over the decades, and I've refuted him so many times over the decades that, that we, will, we could do this in old folks' homes uh, while, while heavily medicated. In fact, we can say similarly in the New Testament that St. Paul clearly upholds traditions that are of God and that bind all believers, as I mentioned earlier in the show. Okay, so now here you have, again, we are assuming a definition of tradition that is consistent with the modern Roman Catholic definition of this idea of tradition, rather than let's He's going to give some examples, and we're going to have the opportunity of jumping into those texts and see exactly what they were saying. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, stand fast in the tradition. So he's going to quote that, and I'm going to quote it for him as well. So then, brethren, stand firm and stakete, stakete, stand firm, and hold to, kretaita, hold to the traditions, plural, which you were taught. That's plural, too. Why is that important? Why is that important? Why is that important, guys? I, all saw, I saw you all looking at something over there. I'm not sure what you're looking at. What are you all looking at over there? Looking at me. Uh-huh. Yeah, you're, you've never lied well. Um, to the <laughs> traditions which you were taught. Plural. Not you, the bishop, or you even the bishops. This is addressed to everyone in the Thessalonian church. Everybody in the church at Thessalonica was already the recipient of these traditions. Keep that in mind. Because whenever anyone refers to this text, aside from the fact this is actually talking about the gospel, aside from that reality you're going to have Roman Catholics who are going to turn to this passage and say, this is why we don't have to show you historical documentation of anyone believing the stuff that we believe about Mary. 
for a thousand years and more. But it's apostolic because it had been delivered to the church at Thessalonica. Now, I can guarantee you that when Cardinal Newman came up with his development hypothesis, this was what he was trying to avoid. Because he knew, he knew, he knew that it is historically absurd to assert that the apostles actually taught to the Thessalonians the concept of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. They know that there is not a scintilla of evidence that could ever be found or has ever been found of something like that. That in reality, the development hypothesis allows you, in essence, to have new sources of revelation. That's what it is. That's, that's, that's how it functions. That's how it functions. I didn't know I was going to go this long. Um, and I'm not even close to being done. <clears throat> been taught either by word or written level, letter. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians 3... Oh, it, it, he didn't even finish that. Let me finish it for him. The traditions which you, plural, were taught, whether dialogu aita di epistoles hemon. So what they do, he doesn't do it here. He's just assuming it. But what they do is they say, see, dialogu is by word, by the spoken word. So there's the oral tradition. Or dia epistoles, an epistle, a written document. So, so here's, here's, our two, here's our two sources. And I'm not making this up. You can go back right now. You can go to YouTube right now. You can go to Sermon Audio right now. You can listen to the debate that Jerry Manatix and I did. I'm sitting here. I can see the audience in my mind where we were seated, uh, the whole nine yards, uh, when we did Sola Scriptura. And you will hear him berate the audience berate the audience for daring to claim to believe the Word of God and not understand the Second Thessalonians 2.15 says that you, if you're going to be a faithful Christian, you must believe to two forms, the written and the oral. And you, if you're a Protestant, you reject the oral. You're in rebellion. Repent! I can preach it just like he can. But is that what it says? He's assuming it. Is that what it says? No, it's not. Paul had been in Thessalonica. So the logu, the spoken word, was his teaching when he was amongst them. He said it had been delivered to them, plural. He had preached to the believers in Thessalonica. He had instructed them in the gospel. And all that it meant. But this is also called Second Thessalonians. So they had something else, didn't they? Yeah, it's called First Thessalonians. He had already written to them in written form, reinforcing what he had taught to them while he was there. This is nothing about, well, there's going to be this source of revelation that 1,500 years from now, the church can use to define something that no one for the next 500 years is ever going to think about, as if it defines the Christian faith. That's what Rome has done. That's what Rome has done with her Marian dogmas, things like that. Okay? So, what is being talked about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? Back up the truck a little bit. Context is always helpful. Verse 13, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brother and beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for what? For salvation, through sanctification, by the Spirit and faith and the truth. 
It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may called you, same people he's talking to, everyone there in Thessalonica, called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold traditions which you were taught. What are those traditions? The gospel, which has already been delivered to them in the preaching of Paul in, his, in their midst and the letter that he wrote to them before. That's what it's about. That's the context. And then he's going to jump down to 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, which is only about three sentences later. So it's still the same context. It's talking about the word of the Lord spread rapidly, be glorified, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men. For not all have faith, for the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts in the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition which you received from us. So, you have the traditions of verse 15, and now a couple of sentences later, in very clear exhortations to to Christian living, there was a problem in Thessalonica, there were people who were causing problems, they were saying that, that the Lord has already returned, and they're not working, and etc., etc. Et and in that context, then, a very discernible context, and in, and in a context, think about it for a second. Think about what Rome has defined on the basis of tradition. Okay? Now, Keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to tradition which you receive from us. That means every single believer in Thessalonica knew all those traditions or these words are meaningless. How could you keep away from someone who didn't believe in the Immaculate Conception of Mary, since nobody ever heard what, about what it was? You see, when you turn this into some secret Gnostic knowledge that's not going to be revealed for another 1,500 years, you turn the whole text on its head. It had an easily understandable meaning in the context in which it was given. Right? It has nothing to do with what Rome's trying to do with it. Or at least with what Tim Staples is trying to do with it. Um, so, <sighs> slow down, James. You're talking too fast. He says, mark those who walk contrary to the tradition. I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, have nothing to do with them. Right? That's pretty authoritative, saying if you don't walk in accordance with the tradition, you are marked and we will have nothing to do with you. Which, in the context that Paul provides, means nothing to the Roman Catholic assertion at this point. But it sounds good. It sounds good. They get away with Every time I turn on EWTN, every time there's a, pro, a call about the same texts, have we, have we corrected them before on this? You better believe it. Have we done it in printed form? Yes. Debate form? Yes. Radio programs? Yes. Over and over. It's all they've got. It's all they have. And you need to be the one who's ready to point out what those texts are actually talking about. These examples sound to you, Jeff, of half a dozen or so uh, examples where, where, our, where uh, our, our Lord defends tradition. Where our Lord defends tradition. And what do they want you to hear? Defending the traditions that we are presenting, not in the context that we've now revealed them, that we've now shown them to be. So, there you go. Um, there's a rather, I didn't mean to 
freeze it on a rather smug look from from Tim. But um, I'm sure Tim was quite pleased with. But look, he probably does that five six times a week, five six times a week, and I don't respond five six times a week. But we certainly have been doing it for a very 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 long time. Hey, you want to do something weird here? Um, this popped up from uh, uh, now. I've been told. Owen, S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N, Chris, wrote to me, Chris Arnzen wrote to me, and said that he's had him on the program, and that he pronounces that strand. To which I responded, then he needs to spell it, S-T-R-A-N. Because, I'm sorry, but especially a vowel and C-H together, ignoring them is an insult to the written form of language. And so I'm going to call upon Owen Strand um, to start pronouncing his name properly uh, in the future. If that's the case, I, I don't know. Uh, but I, I evidently mispronounced it because we've never spoken to each other. What? You got some people? Well, I was just going to say, I c- couldn't quite put together the idea of weird and why you wanted to do something weird. And then you mentioned Chris's name, and now it makes sense. Uh, that's exactly right. Anytime we mention Chris Arnzen, uh, the term weird automatically comes along with that. <laughs> but this actually doesn't have anything to do with that. Um, he retweeted Christopher Rufo, who that name rings a bell, who says, imagine if we had one person in Congress who could make the case against critical race theory with such eloquence and passion. Hats off to you, Kemi Badenoch. And so... Um, I, I, I think it would make too much of a mess to try to uh, get you to do this, but you'll have the audio. Oh, goodness. As soon as I clicked it, it it went flying away as Twitter always. I hate when Twitter does that. I had it right there, and okay, I, I'm back to it. Hold on. Stop and roll it back. What? No. Uh, this is. I think this looks like it's from Parliament. All right, Ready? Got the, got the volume up? Here we go. What we are against is the teaching of contested political ideas as if they are accepted facts. We don't do this with communism. We don't do this with socialism. We don't do it with capitalism. And I want to speak about a dangerous trend in race relations that has come far too close to home to my life. And it is the promotion of critical race theory, an ideology that sees my blackness as victimhood and their whiteness as oppression. I want to be absolutely clear, this government stands unequivocally against critical race theory. Some schools have decided to openly support the anti-capitalist Black Lives Matter group, often fully aware that they have a statutory duty to be politically impartial. Black lives do matter, of course they do, but we know that the Black Lives Matter movement, capital B-L-M, is political. I know this because at the height of the protest, I've been told of white Black Lives Matter protesters calling, and I'm afraid, uh, I apologise for saying this word, calling a black armed police officer guarding Downing Street a pet nigger. That is why we do not endorse that movement in, on this side of the House. It is a political movement, and what would be nice would be for members on the opposite side to condemn many of the actions that we see this political movement instead of pretending that it is a completely wholesome uh, anti-racist organisation. There is a lot of pernicious stuff that is being pushed, and we stand against that. We do not want to see teachers teaching their white pupils about white privilege and inherited yeah. racial guilt. And let me be clear, 
Any school which teaches these elements of critical race theory as fact or which promotes partisan political views such as defunding the police without offering a balanced treatment of opposing views is breaking the law. Wow. Uh, evidently, a, a black... Um, well, this is the equalities minister. I just, I, I just saw this one. This is Daryl Harrison retreated it. The equalities minister could not have been clear. Black Lives Matter and critical race theory are political and do not belong in schools. Teaching ideas such as white privilege as a factual reality is breaking law. So um, I mentioned her name before. It's not mentioned here. But evidently, she is the equalities minister, and she was speaking in, uh, uh, in uh, parliament. And, um, yeah, it would be nice to have that in Congress, wouldn't it? Um, I mean – Donald Trump has said it's bad, too, but I'm sorry. Donald Trump cannot speak with that kind of eloquence, <laughs> no matter how hard he tries. He just, he just can't. That was very, very well done. That is a, a black woman uh, speaking the truth, and that's probably why Daryl Harrison, who's a black man who speaks the truth, was retweeting it. So that was the weird thing was I hadn't heard it. I wanted to hear it. Yeah, that looks, that looks right. That's, that sounds right, yeah. Um, I hope that absolutely goes uh, viral. It needs to go viral, and uh, and congratulations on that. Okay, all right. I'm running out of time, but one thing I did want to talk about, and I even remembered that I want to talk about it. Uh, Al Mohler on the briefing this morning, uh, talking about what's going on in France, and uh, you, uh, the French Revolution was. In the um, in its time, there in the 18th century, very similar to what people want to ha- see happen here in the United States. It was a secular revolution. It was an anti-religious, not just anti-establishment powers, but it was an anti-religious establishment. That's why you had setting up statues to the goddess Reason in Christian churches and Notre Dame and, and things like that. It didn't work well because it turned on itself very, very quickly, and the people who started it found themselves having their heads chopped off by the people who came after them. And that's my hope for the revolution taking place in the United States, to be honest with you. It is pernicious. It is self-destructive. And I I hope uh, that it turns on itself very, 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 very quickly for the sake of my grandchildren and great-grandchildren. That's what we can pray for anyways. But the point is that, that France, however... Never fully recovered. And France views itself as a secular nation. And it's so plain to those of us outside of France that secularism has become the religion of France. And for a Christian, that makes perfect sense. We're made in the image of God. We're going to worship. Okay? So if you, if you train a generation of people that they are stardust, that they are fizzing chemicals, that they are random accidents, and that there is no transcendent meaning in this world, then the result is the state ends up becoming the only source that anyone can find for any kind of meaning, any kind of objective reality, which God has made us to look for. And so what has happened in France then As you have had massive immigration, you now have 10 to 11 percent. That's always the critical mass. 10 to 11 percent of the French population isn't French and doesn't want to be French. It's Muslim. And Macron, 
who is a committed secularist, is seeking to introduce legislation because the state is the, there are no, there is no creator to give us inalienable rights. So all rights are alienable. They can be taken away because they're based upon the state. I mean, all you're doing is regulating animals. You're regulating chaotic animals. And so the state has to be big brother. And so the state recognizes, Macron recognizes, that believing Islam is a problem. I I don't mean believing in Islam is a problem. Islam that actually takes Islam seriously is a problem, not only because of its religious nature, but because, as I've said so many times before, Islam is a religio-political system or a political-religious system, depending on what percentage it is within a particular community. So which, which, where the emphasis lies depends on where they are in the community. And they're getting that point where the political aspect of Islam b- begins to become more and more prevalent. So he recognizes that those who have come into France do not wish to assimilate to French culture, which is secular. And French culture, its secularism, says that secular concepts will determine your behavior, not religious concepts. So, what's, what does he want to do? He wants to stop all homeschooling. As they have done in Germany for years. You cannot homeschool in Germany. The state has to have the opportunity of forming the, the worldview and thought process of each citizen. That's the whole point. And so, while he's aiming it specifically at Islam, that means Christian parents cannot homeschool their children. Jewish parents cannot homeschool their children. Muslim parents will not be able to homeschool their children. The state must have that opportunity. He wants to create a French version of Islam, which is a secular version. Well, as you and I both know, there is, there, historically, over the past two, three centuries, a secular form of Judaism has developed, sadly. I mean, I know many a Jewish atheist. But we all know that that is no longer really Judaism. And I think every Muslim I've ever debated would stand next to me and say, and agree with me, there is no such thing as a secular Islam. That, that's no longer Islam. That you've, that's not possible, just like there is no secular Christianity. There can be no Christianity where Jesus does not define the entirety of one's worldview. There is no Christianity where the light that comes from the empty tomb does not determine everything that we see today, let alone provide the lens by which we look back over world history. You, you, you take those things away, you don't have Christianity anymore, and that's what you have in French, in, in almost all French Christianity. Oh, sure, there are, the, the remnant's still there. There's, there always be a remnant. We, we have remnant churches everywhere. But the formalized uh, forms of Christianity in most of Europe have been gutted of the heart of Christianity 
which is the fundamental assertion that God has invaded human history, he actually rose from the dead, and that Jesus is Lord overall. That, no, that's, that, that may be in the creeds, but, you know, come on, who really takes any of that seriously? No one really believes there was a flood or a resurrection. I, you know, come on, we need to, we need to be, we need to be up with the, with the current world, you know? And so that's what you get. That's what you get. And so when a secular state encounters a believing religion, there cannot be peace. And there won't be. And the, the question is, who's going to back down first? And Macron recognizes this is for the heart and soul of secular France. He, he recognizes these two systems cannot exist side by side. We have to enforce our secular worldview upon all citizens for France to continue in the way we want France to continue and the secular paradise that would, that would come about if everybody would just accept our worldview. We all know that can never happen. It can never happen because man is not a bunch of fizzing chemicals. Um, there is something in the sky above. We're not just animals. And so every political system that tries to force us into that, that's why they have to have your children. And that's why every one of you, I'll say this one more time, I know some of you don't like the fact that I dress politics, but I have to because it's theological. If you vote a certain way in 2020, A, you won't get to unvote that way in 2024. Let me just point that out to you. If you go that direction, this is the last free election that you will have. Look at California. Hello? Somebody wake up. Look at California. That's what they want to do. You can vote all you want in California. There's only one party in California to vote for. That's what's going to happen in the United States. But secondly... What you need to understand, other than all the obvious worldview issues about transgenderism and abortion and infanticide and profaning of marriage and everything else, you need to understand that when you vote for proto-Marxists, a worldview comes with that. And if you vote a certain way in 2020, you just need to understand the state will own your children. The state will be coming after your children. The first thing that will go in a Harris administration, remember, I am convinced, Joe Biden is a, is a he's just, he's taking up space. There ain't, nobody, there ain't nobody there. In a Harris administration, there will be no homeschooling. Oh, sure, we'll have the lawsuits, but once you pack the court, you're guaranteeing what the end result of that's going to be. Because the lawsuits will eventually get to the Supreme Court, and once you pack the court and put all your mind-numb zombies on the court that know exactly what they're supposed to do, that's the end of that. So there might be a, a short delay. But we will adopt the European, and especially the German model, of forced state education of children. It's going to happen. That's what you're voting for. That's what you're doing. And I want this to exist. I want people to download this and have it available on their hard drives so when that happens, and I say, I told you so, I can point to 
where I told you so. Because there are other people in Big Eva that are telling you, ah, don't, don't, ah, don't worry about that. You, no, you've got the freedom to vote to have your children taken over by the state. You know, as long as, they, as long as they're given free food. It's not free, obviously. But you know, as long as that happens, then that's what Jesus would want. Oh. I only hope that someday the clarity will be granted to us to be able to look back and, and to see. Um, obviously, my, my ultimate hope is, oh, Lord, deliver us. <laughs> we, we, need, we need revival. We need, we, we need your spirit to move in our land um, because we're, we're about to commit suicide. Um, I'm sorry? Yeah, Harris O'Rourke. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah that's true. There's no, no two ways about it. No two ways about it. Whew! I was, I was, I was honestly. See, remember our theology matters. Uh, I was honestly um, going to uh, try to get this done in an hour, and I failed miserably <laughs> once again. Um, Jeff uh, preached on uh, on uh, messianic stuff uh, on Sunday, and went an hour and fifteen minutes, and so he's asked me to preach on Sunday. And uh, my first response was, I will try to keep it under an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, I'll actually shoot for about 55, actually. But uh, uh, anyways, I will be preaching on Sunday, and we do Facebook Live that on the reliability of Scripture, if you're interested in something like that. But I went long today, and but it's the dividing line, and I can do whatever I want, because I didn't say how long I was going to be going anyways. So thanks for watching the program today. Lord willing, we'll be back later in the week on Thursday. Probably, maybe, we'll see. Thanks for watching. God bless.